Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we're welcoming back onto the show, Dr. Stephen Nichols. Dr. Nichols is a teaching fellow and chief academic officer at Ligonier Ministries, as well as president of Reformation Bible College. Today, he'll talk with us about theological leadership throughout church history. The Ministry Network podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. To learn more about their new online offerings, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, let's talk with Dr. Nichols. Dr. Nichols, thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, James. Thank you for having me. In a previous episode, you talked with us about Martin Luther's approach to leadership. Would you mind walking us through some other theological leaders and comparing and contrasting them to Luther? Let's start with Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, so dispositionally, they're different. Edwards is bookish, and he chastises himself. I don't know what parties were like at Yale in 1720, (laughs) but he chastises himself for standing off in the corner during parties. And he's like telling himself, I must be more conversational. So he was very bookish. He was unnaturally tall. And I think that caused him to have sort of self-image. He was naturally a little bit more reclusive and sort of unsure of himself. Luther's life of the party. Luther wants a table full of people and he'll talk all night. Edwards will have a table full of people, dismiss himself and go into his study. And Sarah is left to entertain the table full of people. So, so dispositionally, they're different. Methodologically, they're different. Edwards has that systematizing mind, that rational mind. He's going to pull a problem all the way through and tease it out. He's very scholastic in his methodology. And like that scholasticism of the Puritans that we see, Luther's an ad hoc guy. He's not writing systematics. He's not doing systematic exposition. He's ad hoc. Here's the issue. I'm going to write the pamphlet. Here's the other issue. I'm going to write the pamphlet. Here's where the gospel is being attacked. I'm going to charge in. So methodologically, but content-wise, right down the line. God-centered, solas-centered, and true marks of the church-centered. And I think, you know, you see this. You look at all the Mount Everests. What's the thread that holds them together? Be it Augustine or Luther, I'll throw in Aquinas. Be it Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin. And then on into the Princetonians and on into Machen. They're God-centered. They're Bible-centered. They're Christ-centered. They're doctrines of grace. And they love the church and the ordinary means of grace. I mean, that's Christian liberalism. Those are the chapters of Christianity and liberalism. That is at the center of... That's the content of Edwards. It's the content of Luther. So theologically, and then as far as theological leadership, you know, Edwards was never at the head of a movement. He was a local church pastor. He was very influential in the Hampshire Ministers Association, which George Marsden said is a functional presbytery. I think he's right. They were Congregationalists, but decisions were turned over from the local church to the Ministers Association. Like they were a functional presbytery. And he, of course, took the stage for the Great Awakening, but he wasn't at the head of a movement, whereas Luther was. And so they were just in some different contexts, but I think content-wise, they were right down the line. 
How does Luther compare to a leader like Jay Gresham Machen? Oh, this is great. So, you know, they're two dispositionally. I think they're a little different. But I think there's a lot of similarities. Machen loved his students. I mean, he loved his students. I saw it in the correspondence when I was working on the book I did on Machen. And it wasn't just his students when he had them as students. It was after they left. And, you know, everyone knows this. He was paying for some of these guys for lawyers for their church trials because their pensions were at stake and their futures were at stake. So these are young guys, you know, early in their pastorate. He had resources. He's hiring lawyers for some of these guys for their church trials. I mean, he really cared uh, about his students and the warmth of the correspondence between his students. And he cared about his friends. You know, after he goes across the Delaware River there and founds this delightful seminary of Westminster, he goes back to Princeton on Sunday afternoons for lunch. And he has lunch with Princeton faculty, the Armstrongs, you know, Army, he called them. And I remember Armstrong's wife, I think she gave this quote, She gave money to Westminster, and then she said, it's hard to teach at one institution when your heart's with another. Meaning, you know, Princeton, but their heart's at Westminster. But, you know, here's Machen with good relationship with his conservative colleagues, even after he leaves. So I think that's a similarity. They love their students. They love teaching. Both of them love the classroom and theological education. The other thing is they were both battlefield theologians. Luther is battling the Roman Catholic Church. And Machen is battling liberalism across the denominations and rampant in the American church. And what was at stake? God, Christ, scripture, the gospel, and the church. And we're bright at Christianity and liberalism. And it was the same issues. They were packaged differently. But this was not the gospel. This is not Christianity. And this is what Machen's saying. You can believe whatever you want to believe. He's a wonderful libertarian, our friend Machen. But don't call it Christian if you have vacated it of all of its theological content. And Luther was doing the same thing. He's knocking on the doors of a hollow church. And he's saying, this is not the gospel. This is not the church. And Luther was shown the door and kicked out of his church. And Machen was kicked out of his seminary. Well, like forced out. You know, he resigned, but he was forced out. And then he was kicked out of his denomination. And there's a lot of similarities there. And they persevered, and they both started a new church. One's called Protestantism. (laughs) A little bit bigger. A little bit bigger. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But they both, there's a lot of similarities as battlefield theologians. And you mentioned R.C. I will tell you this. He had a huge respect for Machen. Machen was every bit his hero as Luther was because of those reasons. You know, and James, one of the things that almost stopped me in my tracks when I was working on the Machen book I did was, you know, he didn't go to the presbytery. He was being up for a promotion, and Princeton had promoted him to professor of apologetics, by the way, which I think is fascinating. And the denomination was just supposed to rubber stamp. It's all they ever did. They, they never, they just, it was perfunctory thing of these seminary positions. And they, of course, rejected at the General Assembly. A telegram was, and this was when General Assembly events were covered by news outlets, but Machen was sent a telegram by a reporter saying, the denomination just overturned your promotion. And I think that that's the first time Machen learned of it. And I saw the telegram, it's there in the archives at Westminster. And there was something about it for me seeing this. 
And then the other thing is, Machen got hate mail. It's there in archives too. And I saw an envelope that said, Professor of Bigotry, because of theological bigotry, because he was theologically conservative. And it drives home, these are real men. These are real people who are personally attacked because they're standing for the truth. It's like, I'm not the, you guys have denied your identity, but I'm the one that you're kicking out. And then you're right. Months, he crosses the river, and that fall opens the doors of Westminster Seminary. That's resilience. I mean, he doesn't even take a year off to find himself. He just hops right in there. Dr. Nichols, I would love to hear some of your favorite stories about Machen. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, the, there's the, the stories that sort of make the rounds of throwing open the door to the fourth floor of the hall there. It had the classrooms and the student dorms. And, you know, Princeton was a small campus at that time. There was the Warfield House on the one side and the Hodge House on the other side. And the main building, Miller Hall, which was just this, again, you talk about epicenters of Presbyterianism. I mean, think of all those that were educated. And so here's Machen up on the fourth floor, has his apartment. And these are seminarians, you know, they can rub two nickels together. And Machen, of course, has, he has means, he has resources from family, money, and stocks and dividends. So he's buying fresh fruit and cigarettes. I mean, it's a different era. Yeah, right. (laughs) So he throws open the doors and he says, come on, boys. And and they just have these parties and they would talk all night. And, you know, here's Machen just so happy to see these seminarians. And basically it's Luther's table talk, right? Theology in the context of life. But I think a couple of the stories I, I like that maybe we don't always know. One is he was invited to be the president of Bryant College, and I find that interesting. He was also, and you might not know this, James, but he got a letter from Lewis Sperry Chafer's brother, who was an administrator at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he writes a letter to Machen saying, I understand that you are having difficulties at Princeton. And he invites him to come and be on the faculty of Dallas Theological Seminary. And then he writes this. Yes, it gets better. It gets better. He writes, we are a distinctly Presbyterian and Calvinist institution. Now, that was true. But Lewis Berry Chafer ended up getting defrocked from, he was a Presbyterian minister. People don't know that about him, the founder of Dallas. He got defrocked because he refused to refer to the Westminster Standards. (laughs) So so sort of the opposite reasons of Machen, you know. Chafer gets defrocked because he doesn't really know the Westminster Standards, and Machen gets defrocked because he actually cares about them. And then there was uh, the DuPont Hotel in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, the importance of that hotel is that Machen probably would not have written Virgin Birth, Origin of Paul's Religion, or any number of sermons that became books, and some of which eventually, I think, became Christian liberalism. He would retreat to a suite in the DuPont Hotel in Wilmington to write. So he'd hop on the train in Philadelphia, go down to Wilmington, not a far train ride at all, and hop off and go to the DuPont Hotel, which was just, you know, like right out of the Great Gatsby. And he would have this wonderful suite, and he would write. And we know this because he would send letters to his mom on DuPont Hotel stationery, 
letting her know what he was working on and, you know, this chapter or that chapter. And so if you ever happen to be in Wilmington, an unbeknownst site in church history is the DuPont Hotel for Machen. So there's some Machen stories for you. And can we do one more? Do we have time for a bonus? Oh, please. Yeah. Yes. So this is Machen appearing before the Philadelphia City Council against traffic signals. Yes, traffic signals. Because with the onset of automobiles, they were going to set up signals for pedestrians. And Machen, Machen, as a libertarian, said, this is going to make us stupid because we should have enough sense to know when to go across the street and dodge traffic. And number two, I envision there being an empty street and a signal telling me I can't go and I'm just standing on an empty street corner waiting for a signal to tell me that I can go. (laughs) So there he is appearing before the Philadelphia City Council opposing the installation of traffic signals in the city of brotherly love. How many tickets do you think he would have gotten for jaywalking? Well, you know, I think once the law's in place, he would probably be a law-abiding citizen. But if he could keep it from getting enacted, by golly, he would. (laughs) So there's Machen. Well, we kind of skipped Edwards there. Could you tell me, I'm having you jump around church history a little, so I apologize. But can you tell us some of your favorite Edwards stories? Well, there's always the horseback riding story. So, you know, he'd go horseback riding for exercise and also just to free up his mind. And also the Connecticut River Valley is one of the most beautiful places in the country on the face of the earth. And this is the Connecticut River Valley in 1700. I mean, it's beautiful now. It's incredibly beautiful in the 1700s. So sometimes he would take little scripts of paper and an ink jar, a little inkwell and a feather pen, and would jot notes. But he would find that when he would do this in the winter, it just he couldn't do it. The ink would get too cold and it wouldn't run and be smooth enough. So his daughters were always making dresses and, you know, seven daughters in the family of 11. So there's always dress patterns and little fabric swatches all over the place. So he would grab these fabric swatches and shove them in a pocket and then shove pins in a pocket and head off on horseback ride. And as he would get an idea, he wouldn't be able to write it on paper, but he would, this is how his mind worked. He would attach the idea to that cloth. Then he would pin that cloth to his coat. Now I've tried horseback riding. I'm telling you, there is no way on earth in winter I'm going to pin a little piece of fabric to my coat successfully while I'm horseback riding. But he gets back to his study and he's covered with these fabric pieces. And he systematically starts removing them. And as he removes this, you know, swatch, he remembers the idea he associated with it, sets the fabric swatch down, writes the idea, removes the next one, remembers the idea, writes it down, and just works through. I mean, that that's just remarkable on so many levels. The other story that I think is interesting about Edwards is, you know, after he's kicked out of Northampton, he goes to Stockbridge, which is only about 50 miles to the west, but it might as well have been on the dark side of the moon. It was only a dozen English families and in the beautiful Berkshire Mountains, but surrounded by Mohicans and Mohawks. They were also surrounded by Indians that were more friendly to the French, And these are the beginnings. This is the French and Indian War that we're talking about. And this is James Fenimore Cooper, last of the Mohicans. Like, this is the context. And it's in that upstate New York, Massachusetts. Well, anyway, there are skirmishes going on all around Stockbridge, such that troops have to patrol at night because Indians, the French 
associated Indians would raid these towns to get supplies. So this is happening. Meanwhile, Edwards writes to his daughters and says, Hey, when, when are you coming to visit? Your mother and I miss you. We'd love to have you come and stay with us. <laughs> You're thinking, no, let your daughter know that, you know, there's a little bit of a siege going on right now. So there, there was a sense in which maybe Edwards wasn't always aware of his circumstances, I think. But he's saying, hey, all, all is well with us. We'd love to have you come visit. And then, of course, I do think his death is incredibly sad. And we don't think about it. I think it was painful. He died of dehydration, which is horribly painful. But he also, you know, he's separated from his beloved Sarah. And so I just think of his death. And you can go. It's there on the campus of Princeton, President's House. Now it's the alumni or admissions house. And, you know, you see the window in the room where he died. And it's so I do think of that as a tragic, sad moment, of course, his death. And of course, he's president of Princeton University. He is, yeah, that's right. He's president of Princeton University. And in the name of technological advancement, tries to not get sick. <laughs> that's right. Can you sketch that briefly? Sure. So he uh, gets there in January, and there is a smallpox inoculation. This is a version that was, it goes back to Cotton Mather. And even today, you know, there's risk associated with smallpox inoculation. But a lot of people just weren't taking it. They thought it was hocus pocus kind of stuff. And Edwards was a bit of a scientific mind. He was very interested in science as a student at Yale. And so he was very intrigued by medical technology as such as it was. And so he took this smallpox inoculation. He was sort of out of the realm of risk for smallpox. But he took it to show students, primarily at Princeton, they had nothing to fear. But he did react to it. And the reaction caused his throat to swell. And as his throat swelled, it prohibited him from drinking. You know, in our day, we'd put an IV in, treat the infection with antibiotics, and you'd recover. He had none of that. And so basically, he just died of dehydration. And of course, the tragedy is his daughter, Esther Edwards Burr, who had just lost her husband, Aaron Burr Sr., she took the same inoculation. She too had a reaction. She too died. And so, you know, here Sarah comes down and it's her daughter, one of her daughters, and her husband who's buried. So it's just sad. And now you've mentioned that infamous name, Aaron Burr. Yeah. So everyone talks about, you know, Jonathan Edwards' grandson, vice president of the United States, who also kills Alexander Hamilton in a duel. So we have that as part of Edwards. So here's the thing, though. Sarah was actually going to raise, they had two kids, Aaron Burr and Nestor. Sally, named after Sarah, Edwards, Esther's mom, Edwards' wife, and Aaron Jr. Sarah Edwards was going to raise them as a widow. And she dies that fall in Philadelphia of dysentery. Oh, and here's something interesting. She also met Ben Franklin. So she meets Ben Franklin that fall. She's staying in the home of Benjamin Rush, who is a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Presbyterian elder, and comes to be called Dr. Vampire, because he's the one who wrote an article on bloodletting that George Washington's doctors read that then bled Washington, and then Washington dies from bloodletting. So poor Benjamin Rush, who is this American hero, spends the end of his life being called Dr. Vampire and is held responsible by the public for killing Washington. Anyway, Sarah's staying in his house. I mean, this is just a really interesting story. But then she dies. And so Aaron Burr and Sally are raised by the Burrs, not by the Edwardses. So the fact that Aaron Burr turns out to be a scoundrel is not... <laughs> it's not attributable. Is not attributable. <laughs> 
to the Edwardses. It's only attributable to the Burrs. And apparently they have questionable stock. I don't know. I'll stay out of it. Well, you heard it first here. <laughs> I'm just an historian who reports the facts. I do not editorialize. Join us next week as we talk with Marvin Olasky, editor-in-chief of World Magazine. In the meantime, you can visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.